0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 9th, 2021. I am John putt the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. I just want to read you something that uh, Donald Trump said yesterday to Hugh Hewitt on Hugh Hewitt's show... Uh, there have been little pieces of news snippets that came out of Hugh's show. Uh, Hugh begging him not to endorse Eric Greitens in Missouri for one thing, and Trump saying that his base would be very, very angry if he didn't run in 2024. But he said a pretty astonishing thing, that um, if we are to take him at his word, may represent the single largest breach of national security by any human being ever in history. But let me just read to you what what he, what he said. Um, Hugh asked him, you know, Mr. President, uh, I wanted to ask especially about the hypersonics that China launched. Did you know they were coming? This is a game-changing weapon that they have launched on President Biden's watch. And Trump said, I agree. Hugh said, did you know they're about to do that? Trump said, I knew that I started it. I don't know what that means. So Russia started it after they got our information. You know, somebody gave them During the Obama administration, everything we had on hypersonics, and Russia did it, and what I did is a catch-up program, and we've caught up, largely caught up, but what happened is Russia got it, and then China got it perhaps from Russia. I doubt they did it themselves. They got it perhaps from Russia, maybe from some bad guy in the United States, but you know what happened? They, Russia, got the how-to, the knowledge from the United States. They did it, and Obama didn't do it. I caught up with it. How China got the information, I don't know. But I had heard that they had information. But we we started that program very heavy under my administration. I don't know what they're doing about it now with Biden. I really don't know. So if we just separate out what he's saying, we had research on hypersonic weapons. He believes that the Russians stole our ultimate high beyond top secret st- research on these weapons that we had not developed and then somehow China got it from Russia either China gave it to Russia or China stole it from Russia and then China built the hypersonic weapons and he Trump knowing that this was happening initiated a program to build hypersonic weapons ourselves which according to him we had not been building we had only been researching so explain to me how this isn't the biggest story of the last 10 years I mean there's something weird about the way he puts it together and knowing him he could have gotten it off strat for you know it's like not that on the one hand he's president so he has security briefings on the other hand we know that like he didn't pay attention to security briefings and I feel like if we had if the Chinese advancing beyond us in technology as a result of technology theft from American research. Um, that is the biggest story of the last 10 years.
1: But I mean, I think the bigger, I mean, as, as it pertains to Trump, I think the bigger story here is that he's disclosed that we have a program uh, if, if he's telling the truth um, and that it's far along according to him, right? I mean, that, that was not, what was commonly known for for a good reason right so a the public's not
0: supposed to know about programs like this for very good reason b there may have been the most massive security breach in the history of the world uh during the obama administration c trump initiated a massive military program to develop an entirely new weapon system that nobody
2: seems to know exists and d what i so c c is the part that seems weakest to me like if it's actually true if what he's saying is in fact true there's no way someone wouldn't have leaked that to the press during the trump administration seeing themselves as some sort of patriot as we know they did in lots of other agencies and departments and worried that, you know, the authoritarian Trump was going to blow up, you know, start a war with his new supersonic weapons or whatever, hypersonic weapons. Uh, I, I can't believe it's real. And But this actually goes to the larger issue with Donald Trump, which is you don't, he's, he's the boy who cried wolf on so many different issues, including ones of serious national security import that you can't believe what he says. And checking it gives him the oxygen that he wants and why he says these kind of outrageous things. Um, Is it possible that it's true? Sure, but like coming from him, you have to assume it's not or that it's some sort of misguided, you know, bloviating, because obviously, again, it all comes back to making him look like the country's savior, right? Oh, Obama did this terrible thing. And then I stepped up and I fixed this. It's all really all about him. And it could be hypersonic weapon. You can insert anything into that Mad Lib that he tends to do in his post presidency. When he goes on these shows, it could be anything. He's always going to have the same narrative
3: in 2019. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton said that Russia had stolen, quote, hypersonic cruise missile technology, largely stolen from American technology.
0: So why why didn't we pay why why didn't we pay attention to this? I'm very confused.
3: I think you're identifying a significant gap in media, the media diet that it feeds its audience, because the audience isn't interested in foreign policy or national security affairs.
0: Doesn't register. I think, doesn't I think audience a, engagement. I think there's a second way to look at this, which is that what we're talking about here is an arms race. And uh, not only are people aren't interested in, you know, foreign policy, but um, the people who dominate the coverage of these things in the United States are very mindful of the fact that they don't want to increase tensions in the world while there's a potential authoritarian in office what kind of ammunition would they be giving to Trump to lend credence to this idea that the Chinese possess a weapon system that is more sophisticated than any weapon system we possess? And what does that cause? What will that cause us to do as a country? Um, And I I just, I'm John Bolton's a friend of mine. I've never known him to prevaricate. I don't, he wouldn't have any reason to, lie we also know that our intelligence agencies have had a habit of chronically overestimating these things and the ca- capabilities of of our uh, antagonists in ways that we should we have every reason to cast a skeptical eye on when they report on these things which by the way also goes to the, the very specific reports that we have about what sh- Russia is planning to do in Ukraine in February or March, like we have we have leaks from the intelligence services saying that they have a specific number of troops they're planning to amass on the border with a specific number of weapons. and a sp- It's so um, specific that uh, it was either sort of spoon-fed to them as a form of disinformation or uh, they're the, they're they're suddenly really fantastic at determining these things that they have been incredibly bad well, I think bad those are at. two very distinct issues.
3: You're talking about open source intelligence using commercial satellites to identify troop movements. That's
0: something that's verifiable. Um, you yeah, should we're, not to, we're not we're not talking the... about that. We're not. To, that's not that is not where these intelligence tests. they this is this is not. They're moving now, so they'll be in place in February. That's not what the intelligence that said that in February, they'll be ready with 200,000 people on the border. I think a lot of that comes
3: from
1: military intelligence in Kiev. Um, I think the other uh, massive story that this points to, which is it it doesn't um, sort of reveal suddenly, this is something that's been ongoing, but it highlights it, is the very dangerous um, ongoing increased cooperation between Russia and China. Um, that's That's a huge problem. for for the US. They've been increasing military ties, diplomatic ties, commercial ties, um, joining up in uh, uh, joint statements uh, against uh, US efforts in various ways. Um, That is something that um, we should all be worried about. Okay, but
0: it, it it beggars reason to believe that if Russia gets its hands on the technology of the future, it's just going to hand it to China. Like that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like they don't need China to become technologically superior and more masterly than they are either. Like they do share a gigantically long border and there's been a lot of tension between them. And they're not just going to be like, Hey, I got this fantastic file out of the United States on this hypersonic weapons thing. Why don't you go build it? Like, I mean, that's, that that doesn't that doesn't follow either. I mean, and Trump suggests in his weird curlicue statement here that the presumption is or their presumption or whoever's presumption it is that he's operating on, that Bolton must have been part of also, is that China stole it from Russia. Because of course, if China is, you know, a massive technology transfer and technology thief in the world why wouldn't have Russia penetrated just as much as it has us penetrated or, 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 or Western Europe or, or anywhere like that. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a thing. Um, uh, but, uh, anyway, um, I'm going to be interested to see if anybody follows up on this, because this idea that the Chinese are now, you know, bidding fair to outstrip us, uh, in the in the upper atmosphere is a very 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 serious matter like the most serious matter since in in this realm since the development of the multi-warhead nuclear missile um in the 1960s Uh, and so i i mean i can't think of anything that's even comparable i will mention though again, in terms of secrecy and American secrecy and one of the many forms of the degradation of our, of our sort of national commitment to our own national defense, uh, that there was this striking moment in 1989 or 1990 when I was 29 or 30 years old, when it was revealed that we had an upper atmosphere plane that could fly from New York to Los Angeles in 60 minutes and that had been used as a, as a mass, as, a, as, as the key spying device uh, over the Soviet Union for 40 years. And nobody ever blew the secret. It was called the Black Hawk and nobody ever blew the secret. Something like 10 or 12 people in the Pentagon and the president knew of its existence and nobody else. And it was a total black hole for almost four decades. Or maybe it's three decades, I'm sorry. Anyway, um, kind of an astounding story. Uh, it's impossible to believe that can happen now, right? I mean, just impossible. Um, and that technology, by the way, exists. It's like, yeah, we could fly from New York to Los Angeles in an hour. They did it back then, but somehow we're not allowed to. I don't know. Anyhow, that's, uh, that's, that's another interesting aspect of uh secrecy and the change between then and now another blackbird not Blackhawk. blackbird thank you uh, pe- people were right yes i know thank you yes well you know i made a big mistake the other week saying that the historian neil ferguson uh was um what did i say i say it was irish instead of scottish uh so i want to uh, try to repair that damage Just as abe just repaired my blackbird damage uh, by talking a little bit about uh, Neil Ferguson's second appearance on Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast, the successor to his post-corona podcast. Um, the first one, which I talked to you about last week, uh, Neil and Dan discussed sort of the aftermath of the pandemic. Neil having written this amazing book, Doom about the history of pandemics and the effect they have on civilizations. The conversation in the second one is really fascinating and up to the moment because Neil, who is a major world world class academic, has taught at, at at Oxford, at Cambridge, at Harvard, um, and is now a fellow at the uh, Hoover Institution. Is part of this team of people who has uh, moved very fast to start the University of Austin, uh, this uh, new university. Uh, he, according to this podcast, basically it was late June that they that they conceived of it and they announced it. I don't know. A month ago or something like that and the idea was that the number of academics whose lives and careers are being ruined by 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 efforts to squash squelch and deny them free speech um, was re- reaching such a critical mass there needed to be a new home for them specifically and for free speech free the free exchange of ideas at the university level more generally so neil ferguson talks about that the idea behind it why it's happening, and how college campuses differ today from the way they did even seven or eight years ago. He says, if you think you know how bad it is, you don't know how bad it is. Things have accelerated wildly in the last seven or eight years in a manner that even he couldn't even have imagined, not that anybody wasn't talking about the leftward tilt of universities and the fact that conservative scholarship was unwelcome and all of that but that now what we have essentially is an atmosphere on campus that denies everybody the right to freedom of speech and threatens everybody, no matter where they are, with the possibility of investigation, denunciation, arrest, all kinds of things if they step out of line with the uh, demands, principles, and ideas expressed by the farthest left and the most radical people on campus and the administrators who back them. So that is the Call me back podcast with Dan Sinor. Really great with Neil Ferguson. Go to Apple, Google, Play Stitch, or wherever you find podcasts. Download it today. You will not be sorry. All right, so uh now what do we talk about?
3: Biden caved.
0: <clears throat>
3: Biden caved to Russia again. Gotta remind readers, viewers, listeners, whatever you call yourselves that in March and April, when Moscow moved something to the effect of 100,000 troops to the border, scared everybody out of their minds, uh, Biden placed a very high profile call to Vladimir Putin at which he promised or offered to hold a bilateral summit um, with the Russian president in June, which is itself a reward presidents know or should know. That their very presence constitutes legitimacy and um, is a reward for foreign actors to give them uh, direct bilateral access to the most powerful person on the planet Earth. Um, That defused that crisis and they're doing it again because Joe Biden has said that he in a call yesterday to Vladimir Putin, very high profile call, uh, trying to work out this conflict, which is very similar to the last one, save for the fact that the Afghanistan withdrawal has happened in the interim, giving Russia every indication that this president is more pliant than perhaps they recognized earlier, um, that he wants to hold a multi multilateral summit. It's not just with Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, but the heads of make great powers in Europe, great Britain, France, Germany, etc Um, and that's something that Vladimir Putin has always wanted. He's always sought to have his own Malta conference. He's always wanted to have the heads of state at Europe at his feet, uh, acquiescing and consenting to a new order on the continent, uh, one that they would bless and that would essentially yield concessions to Moscow. I and mean, we, you don't have to be a history major to know we've seen this movie before. Uh, and if it comes to, to fruition in the way that I fear it will, um, it's not going to end the conflict on the continent. It will certainly beget more of it, um, but it will likely sacrifice the independence And the third and the 30-year experiment of independence in Ukraine.
0: So that's a pretty worst case scenario. The the devil's advocate position would be why not, why not have a son? Why not have a conversation? Why not have a multilateral? What's the
1: worst that can happen?
0: What's the worst that can happen? Hey, what's the worst that can happen?
1: Well, I mean, this, you know, this has been coming up since The, the whole idea that, you know. Talk, talk to you to, till you're blue in the face. That's that's what that's what we need to do. Um, the worst that can happen is that uh, such conversations, especially at, over time, uh, elevate the bad actors, reduce uh, America's uh, ability to be to um, be a, a, a to project power uh, via credible threats. Uh, and the world gradually or rapidly becomes a much more dangerous place. I'm not sure that's the worst that can happen.
0: Actually, I think okay. what often happens in these meetings, or has historically happened in these meetings, is that uh, they they want to they want to you know tell Putin in no uncertain terms, "You cut it out now. We are all together here. You cut it out. You want to be part of the community of nations. You just cut it out." And then, then come the confidence building measures. I mean are there things that we can do let's find some kind of common ground where we can work together and then we can build the relationships that will be helpful in the future to make sure that we blah, 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 right and then the concessions come the concessions come in the form of confidence building measures in the you know in the 60s and 70s in negotiations with the Soviet Union those confidence building measures often had an interesting Double edge, like uh, let's have lots of scholarly exchanges, which then allowed Soviet spies into the United States to, to work on technology transfers, or let's have some kind of cultural exchange. Let's do this. Now, sometimes that ended up working in the long run to the benefit of freedom in the West. Uh, you know, the Helsinki, uh, what came out of Helsinki ended up being a crucial uh, legal document that dissidents could use against the Soviet Union, uh, even though there were a lot of concessions to Russia's like military dominance uh, or even uh, missile superiority, things like that. But it is in the confidence-building measures. It's the well. How do we make sure that we can change this relationship? We're just on a bad track here. Things are on it, but you don't want to get us angry. But we should. We should really. You know the most famous one of these is that not even related to this. It was when we were negotiating with Saddam Hussein on his surrender uh, after the first Gulf War, and we were negotiating a surrender. It's like we won, we beat the crap out of you. Like now you should leave power, or whatever. And he he was like, "Okay, I'll do whatever you want. Can I just have my helicopters? I just need." I just need some helicopters so I can get, you know, my people can get around because, you know, the roads are all ruined. So we just need our helicopters. And Schwarzkopf was like, oh, OK, you can have the helicopters. And then he used the helicopters to dest- as, as, as gunships to destroy an uprising uh, in, in the South, kill tens of thousands of people and prevent him from being removed from power because we have a naivete about there is something about us in the West and all that. So we, we are naive about just how ruthless people can actually be. But
2: uh, are we with Biden though? Because I think Biden actually has a, has a worse tendency. It would be easier if he was just naive, but he actually has a, we've talked about this at length on the podcast. He has a combination of overconfident hubris and his ability to understand geopolitical issues. And, uh, and a sense that like I'm also tough like when I speak I have I'm respected by the rest of the world unlike Trump was and et cetera et cetera but I think that you know and he loves to have these summits because he is able to play that role in these summits he's having a virtual democracy summit as we speak where he's pontificating about free speech and human rights meanwhile his administration is actively opposing a bill that would protect the human rights of the Uyghur minority in China like he he but he loves the he loves the play the play for him of going to these meetings, being taken seriously his whole life, he has been kind of, you know, I think the press and and certainly his fellow polls have not always been uh, accepting of his own assessment of his uh, ability to do so when it comes to foreign policy. He just doesn't know what he's talking about half the time, but now he's in charge and he gets to be the person who knows what he's talking about. Look, he's only going to have one term. So he gets to have his summit and he gets to
0: pull somebody, gets to pull an army out of Afghanistan. He tries to get a big bill. Maybe he'll get it. Maybe he won't. And, you know, basically he's just, he's in this for the legacy. He's already in it for the legacy. I mean, that's, I think, one of the reasons why they're so unimaginative when it comes to COVID. Like, they're like, there's no, there's no legacy play here. Although, of course, being the person who got us out of COVID would be some kind of legacy. But there's no, like, that's not in his wheelhouse. That's not in his So it's like you. I don't know what the hell this is. You do it, Anthony Fauci. I don't know what 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 it is that we're we're talking about. And so, we're now making legacy plays. The more he makes legacy plays, like summits and things like that, the more you have to believe that we are moving toward a one-term presidency in which he is already full, fully cognizant of the fact that he will be too old to be president in 2025 and will need to exit the scene. He's not going to say it. He's, he's going to say he's running. He's going to do what he can to empower, be nice to Kamala Harris and see what, if there are ways he can help to repair her reputation, since that would also be his legacy, like leading to the first woman of color uh, 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 at the white house. But it's a, it's a pretty significant thing to watch him play these games and then not fully engage with the things that are going on that require immediate and pressing attention in which in which the approaches that have been taken so far aren't working and where you can really shift field without people really in a good way in a way that would actually make the American people say look he's learning on the job or he's really you know he's 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 found his footing he's found he's not interested
2: but, he, I, but not he, at all. He, I was just going to say he punts responsibility when he doesn't want to do that, like when he was jokingly or not saying Fauci's president when people were asking him about the virus. But then he blames underlings when something he does decide to do goes badly. So when border officials are riding around on horses trying to deal with this incredible border crisis, he blames them and, and you know, his, his fa- falsely accuses his own his own. Uh, agents of doing stuff that they hadn't done so he either blames their punts and he doesn't he doesn't look right. I still want to know how did we end up drone striking innocent people in Afghanistan that killed a family I don't know they basically were like eh who knows you like they, nothing no accountability All
3: right, they may be very unimaginative in the White House and very focused on domestic politics and legacy achievements and what have you, it's it's possible. I think in the event that this summit does go forward, the wild card really is <clears throat> European officials, because the worst case scenario that you can envision from a breakout into Ukraine, according to a, a German paper that published what they believe to be preliminary plans from Russia, I take it with a grain of salt, because how do they know? Um, but it would be a breakout blitz across the Black Sea coast, take Mirapol, take um, uh, Odessa and take Kiev, go to the Dnieper, this river that runs along basically the middle of uh, Ukraine and sort of leave this Vichy element uh, um, towards towards the West that is unoccupied, but is nevertheless beholden to an occupied Kiev. And in that situation, you can foresee, and are according to media reports out of Kiev, preparing for among the populations, a prolonged resistance. Uh, which would amount to a campaign of attrition, a brutal campaign inside the uh, inside this country that would produce a refugee crisis. A refugee crisis would destabilize Poland. It would destabilize the Baltics. It would destabilize Germany, uh, and it's a sort of thing that they would be deeply invested in preventing militarily, um, fortifying their borders. Uh, it would shake up NATO to a degree that I think Russia desperately wants, um, but no nobody with any sort of foresight in um, in Belgium, should be preparing for or should be welcoming. They should be preparing for it now. So, the worst case scenario in this sort of event is a prolonged destabilizing conflict that tears Europe apart. Uh, and it's the sort of thing that would last for the duration of Joe Biden's presidency for sure. Uh, and if you're contemplating worst case scenarios, a real live hot conflict on the continent between um, proxy conflict between Russia and the United Powers of the Atlantic Alliance is the
0: worst case scenario that they should be preparing for. Well, that is, that is certainly the worst case scenario. I mean, talk about, talk about a legacy, talk about a Biden legacy as he stood there and let, and let, and let Putin, um, you know, uh, create a crisis in, 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 in NATO uh, that he had already immediately ruled out any use of force to counter, by the way, that's, that's the other important point is that Biden said, absolutely not. When asked if, 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 if force was an option on the table, should Russia make moves on Ukraine? Um, uh, that is, uh that, is, that is pretty bad. And you know what else is bad? Incognito mode. It's not the worst case thing, but incognito mode, which, you know, you get on your Google browser, says your activity might still be visible to your employer, your school, or your internet service provider, but how can they even call it incognito then? Really? Come on. So to stop people from seeing the sites you visit, to really stop them, you need to do what I do and use ExpressVPN. Your home internet provider can also see and record your browsing data. If you go to your parents' house, you know, you use the Wi-Fi the admin. If you're, you know, your people can see your data. At a coffee shop, they can see your data. You're exposed in incognito mode or not. I mean, that that's where the sinister people come in who know how to look at this stuff while you're sitting there in the coffee shop next to you. So, and in the U.S., your home internet provider and people like that can are legally allowed to sell the data. It's not even the sinister stuff. They can sell the data to advertisers and pester you. So with all that in mind, it's good to know there's an app like ExpressVPN, which encrypts all your network data and reroutes it through a network of secure servers so that your private online activity stays private. It works on all devices. Couldn't be easier to use. The app literally has one button. You tap it to connect and your browsing activity is secure from drawing eyes. So let Strange stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com/slash commentary. Use my link at expressvpn.com/slash commentary to get three extra months free. That's com slash commentary to learn more. And you know, while you're browsing in your wonderful expressvpn protected mode. You could be sitting in your holiday present to yourself, the X chair, the gift that keeps on giving you joy and comfort every day all year long, a gift that looks as good as it feels, a gift that will actually pay for itself in terms of how much more productive you'll be at work. I'm talking about the X chair, by far the most comfortable and ergonomic chair I've ever used. And honestly, it's also probably the coolest looking piece of furniture I own. Look, with its patented LMX technology, it doubles as a massage chair. And it can either cool or warm your back. Can your office chair do that? I don't think so. Now is the perfect time to purchase an X chair. Buy early, buy now. And here's X chair's holiday gift to you. Save $100 off your X chair just by purchasing it at xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair. Commentary.com. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com and save. Xchaircommentary.com. Okay, more democratic freakout data. Uh, it's a very small sample in a much larger poll. New uh Wall Street Journal poll. Wall Street Journal now working alone on its polling. it was working with ABC. Uh, I can't remember who they were working with, but they're now working alone. So they have a poll. Biden has a pretty bad approval rating and all this, but I think 167 Hispanic respondents. So it has a uh, plus or minus uh, margin of error, pretty high margin of error, like 7%, which means, you know, it could go 14% either way. Even so, even with that kind of margin, uh, we are. Sh- it shows that uh, in the midterm elections, in choosing between Democrats and Republicans, pretty much 43-43. This has never happened before. Doesn't exist. It's never existed. Anything data remotely like this. We've had hints over the last four or five years that uh, there's movement toward Republicans, uh, in the border counties of Texas and South Florida and other places um, for, you know, broadly speaking, people of Spanish speaking origin voting uh, more Republican than they have before. But uh, th- this, is, this is in the nature of a possible meltdown in Democratic support. And it comes at the same time as polling suggests that people of Spanish speaking or origin are deeply offended by the word Latinx. They don't like it. They don't like the term Latinx. It makes, I think, what is the number? 50% of them say they are less likely to vote for somebody who uses the word Latinx we are seeing a very interesting kind of meltdown in the conceptual foundations of modern progressivism, according to which there is a grand coalition of non-white people, BIPOCs, right? People of color. And so you can somehow increase the numbers of people who are not white by adding them all together, putting them all together, and then when you have to subfactor them, putting them all together in subgroups in lar- it's uh, but making them large subgroups. So Asians, and in this particular case, Hispanics or Latinx people who are Puerto Rican, Mexican, Colombian, uh, New Mexican, you <laughs> know from Central America, from South America, and they have very little in common and they don't like being grouped together. And of course, Democratic politicians and media idiots like to group them together because they can claim greater numbers and push greater arguments about how important they are or how, you know, including their own progressive leaders. Uh, Something very big is brewing here
2: can can I uh, I, I've been reliably told that um, the new phrase that's going to supplant BIPOC is actually the global majority. This is the new idea, which is that whites are actually globally a minority. So now we have we should refer to anyone of color as being the global majority, which is interesting because it kind of undermines their argument about minority rights. But but that's for another day here's something that the Democrats need to look at intermarriage rates among Hispanics. They have very high intermarriage rates in this country. They have, I think, doubled or tripled since the since the beginning of the 21st century. Very high intermarriage rates mean different um, understandings of what the identity politics message on race tells them. They don't like it because they are they see themselves as part of extended families that do have white people in them, also have black people in them, have maybe Asian people in them. That that is In my opinion, what has been beautiful and fantastic about this country all along, that's the melting pot is that people come here, they might have grandparents who don't speak English, the grandkids are marrying someone from another race and everybody's American and it's this extended family. It's that, I mean, I am going to sound kumbaya here, but it's like a rainbow, it's great. And this is what this country has always offered. And people have been voting with their with their wedding rings and vows in the last 20 or 30 years about that. And the Democratic Party has ignored that trend. They assume that anyone who has a Hispanic surname will, will identify as a Democratic-leaning Hispanic voter. And that's just not the case. So
3: that survey that found that uh, profound, terrifying gap for um, or closed gap rather for preferences among Hispanic voters had a big margin of error. Right. Because it's a very small subsample. So sagely chin stroking poll watchers advised, you know, Democrats, don't panic. It's just noise. It's not a big deal. Right. That same survey also found among issue sets, among the most relevant issue sets, that the very top issue, albeit at 13%, but nevertheless, the top concern, because it had 13% support and everything, all the other issues had less, was the border. Um, the border doesn't even register in the national media conversation at all. Uh, it's, it's a niche concern if it's addressed at all, it is discussed in political terms and not security terms. And where has the erosion among uh, Democratic support been the most profound among Hispanic voters. Border counties, which used to be very dark blue, as dark blue as you could possibly get. And in 2018, I'm sorry, 2020, uh, yeah, no, 2018 and 2020, you found um, increasing movement among Hispanic voters, this broad category of Hispanic voters um, towards uh, Republicans. So, I mean, those two data points would seem to dovetail and to lend some credence to the idea that this isn't noise this isn't static that this is a real real
0: warning sign look the term the rainbow coalition was 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 engineered by Jesse Jackson in the 1980 as an effort to claim that he represented more than just american black people there was a rainbow coalition of non white People that included Hispanics and Asians and uh, whatever, and 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 LGBTQ people. There was a rainbow coalition, and the virtue of it was therefore, if you did that, your 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 count was larger. You went, you were up to thirty-five percent of the population, as opposed to twelve percent of the population, and therefore, people needed to deal with you. Um, uh, I am struck again by the fact that people, uh, this notion of shoveling people into a political coalition that they did not ask to be made a part of and then told that they think a certain way because they are part of this coalition that does not reflect or conform to any understanding of their own lives um, is, a, is, a, is a time bomb. Um, and, and the time bombs started going off in 2020. Now, You may say it kind of started going off in 2016 when Trump used language about border crossers and, you know, illegals and that sort of thing that was extremely offensive. And I think everybody from us, including him, from us onward, was surprised that he ended up with the exact same amount of the Hispanic vote as Mitt Romney got in 2012. Reason that's striking is that Romney, of course, though he said he was against illegal immigration or something like that, was relatively welcoming, you know, them- thematically to you know immigrants and immigration, and and Biden, and uh, Trump was entirely the opposite. And what that said was there is a core of people in the United States who are who are who are Hispanic, Latino, whatever, who aren't drinking the Kool-Aid and they're the same people they were in 2016 as they are in 2012 and that means they're growing (laughs) that means they're growing and they got bigger and they got bigger in 2020 and now they are screaming they're firing shots across the bow of the Democratic Party saying you're about to go into the perpetual wilderness you lose you know if you don't stop behaving this way toward us uh You're dead meat, because if we withdraw from this, if you can't reliably expect 70 percent of the Hispanic vote in places where you need the Hispanic vote, you are toast, buddy. Like you think 2022 is going to be a cataclysm if there is some kind of Hispanic withdrawal or retreat from the Democratic Party in places where there are actual significant races that involve Hispanics where there where there is a contest. Like let's say in California, where they have jungle primaries, and where a lot of people are retiring, and where a lot of that forty seat gain um, that Democrats experienced in the twenty eighteen elections was uh, was located. I don't know, you know, and but this is a religion that the Democratic Party cannot surrender so easily. Same, it is, yeah, uh, yeah.
1: I I, I just. I, I just want to emphasize that I don't think it's merely a matter of the of the um, Democrats perceived political utility of, of grouping um, these categories together to create a larger coalition. I think it's representative of the way they think about other people, um, which is that th- they are all victims, downtrodden, darker than us. Uh, and in that sense, we can kind of put a label on with the same label on all of them. Um, and that and that I think, you know, along with, of course, sp- specific policies and and uh, tensions and, and uh, misgivings about the border. But I think it is it is just being talked to that way and and perceived that way. That is enough to make them flee.
3: The, the very same you know left wing Niedermeyers who are saying don't believe the polling are also saying, you know, that's the way de- the way the left talks doesn't register, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's the sort of fixation that people who are, you know, on Twitter all day long talk about, but real voters don't care about Latinx or Latinx, however you pronounce it. But Abe's right as a metaphor for this ideology that has overtaken the Democratic left, um, which flattens the complexities of identity into, uh, you know, absolute immutable political categories um, is, you know, is, is relevant insofar as Democrats who know it's a problem know it's a problem. Talk about it. Know it's a problem. They would like to get rid of it. They'd like to extirpate it from their language. But even if they did, I wrote about this, I wrote a blog post for the the, website about this that sort of demonstrates this with specific examples. Even if every politician stopped saying this tomorrow and every media outlet stopped using this phrase tomorrow, it would still be a ubiquitous feature of the political culture. Or, or just general culture because it's everywhere. It's in it's it's how you categorize movies and streaming services. It's how restaurateurs talk about their industries. It's how uh, you know, lifestyle brand magazines talk about this. It's 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 in a political life now to a degree that you can't just rip it out of the culture. You can't extirpate it tomorrow. And it's encountered more in that way by people who are otherwise, you know, sort of peripherally attached to the political dialogue. But they eat at restaurants, they read Home and Garden magazine, they you know they they patronize
2: Oprah brands and they see this word everywhere. This, and see, this, is, this is a really important point because it speaks to the, the huge blind spot that the Democratic Party wants to continue to avoid having. And it's actually about education and class, because if you look at the people who are these culture and content creators, if you look at the people advising the Democratic Party, if you look at the activist class in the Democratic Party. They're largely college educated, they're higher income. They embrace this stuff. It's why, I mean, I remember sending to you guys a text late at night because I was scrolling through Amazon Prime offerings and everything was broken out by race. It's like Latin lead, you know, Hispanic lead, Asian lead. And I was like, this is insane. But I will say this. If you look at their it's not just their rhetoric, it's their policies, too. So one of the most um, uh, star, you know, Democratic people with a Hispanic surname is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What was she doing this week? She was on the floor of the House saying to the American people that the government should bail her out because she still has student loans. She makes over one hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year. She should pay her own damn bills. Pardon for the pardon me for cursing. It gets me enraged. But this is someone who is advocating, uh, claiming to advocate on behalf of the average person and seemingly doesn't understand that the average person in this country doesn't have a college degree. and doesn't have student loans. And she wants them who make less than her to bail her out and to bail out Rashida Tlaib, who is complaining about her law school loans, because that is a policy that the educated elite in their class want, not the people who they claim to speak for need.
0: People do not like it when p- other people assume they know them at a glance. Right. It's offensive. It's condescending. It it, it turns everybody into a robot. Now, political consultants and large-scale political campaigns and efforts to appeal to 300 million people at once have no choice but to try to aggregate large groups of people using messages and ideas that are of the greatest appeal to the greatest number and that might speak in different ways to different sorts of people depending on you know, what you might know about them and what you think their backgrounds and their religious histories and their ethnic experiences might tell you. Right? That's politics. But it's not every individual person. And we are increasingly, we see a, an educated elite class that says, you get in this box and you stay in this box. You know, in the 1990s, Glenn Glenn Lowry, who has taken an astonishing intellectual journey, uh, you know, as an as an as an African American intellectual from sort of a kind of neocon position to kind of moving into the radical left, and he has now shifted wildly back, so that he's now probably more right wing than we are. um, Wrote a book in the 1990s called One One by One from the Inside Out, and the idea was the American Creed says that you are an individual and that you know policies like affirmative action and onward are all about subsuming people into a group identity and that this is something to which we should be allergic we should be thinking about people one by one from the inside out not as on the outside they look like this or they have this last name or something like that and therefore we should we know who they are and what they want now again i'm going to say It's not that simple because we do know that, you know, groups often vote very similarly to one another. And if you want to appeal to them, you want to say certain types of things. The interesting thing here is that the Democratic Party has now committed itself to a philosophy in which they are now saying things to people that they take for granted or supporters of theirs, to which those supporters are either offended or actually allergic And they are having an allergic, repelled reaction to the development of democratic progressivism. They are being repelled by it. Having once, you know, whatever, thought, you know, this is the best choice for me, given all the other choices. They're like, these these people are treating us like garbage. They're calling us names we don't like. They're denying our... And they're even, even denying the separateness of ethnicity you know it's like the separateness of ethnicity is i'm not a latinx i'm 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 my mother's from Colombia. you know um and and by the way sometimes here's an interesting little detail to to finish up so tomorrow or tonight steven spielberg's version of west side story opens Uh, uh ecstatic reviews i haven't seen it yet um so he was very careful to say in interviews in the last couple of days that, you know, he wouldn't see anyone who was not Latinx for the parts of the sharks and the people uh, in, in relation to the sharks, which actually led uh, a friend of mine to say, uh, didn't, wouldn't, didn't this, he just said this, doesn't this run afoul of anti-discrimination law? Like, can you actually say something like that if you're an employer i'm not sure anyway i don't know what the what you know for first amendment rights may, may may trump that but um but he he said two interesting things one of which was somebody said there's a lot of spanish in this movie apparently i don't know what that means um the broadway version in 2010 uh took some of steven Sondheim's lyrics and lin-manuel miranda translated them into spanish particularly the song i feel pretty which has a lyric that Sondheim had come to hate anyway. So it was sung in Spanish and there were no subtitles or anything. And apparently the Spanish in this movie is spoken and there are no subtitles. And somebody said to Spielberg, hey, why aren't there subtitles? And he said, it would be offensive. It would be offensive for me to use subtitles because Spanish is the second, one of the two languages that is spoken in this country. And it would therefore be offensive for me to have subtitles. Okay. So... 24 percent of the public or something like that what is the hispanic number i don't even know what it is like uh how many of them speak spanish (laughs) we don't even know it's not offensive to have subtitles because a movie in spanish that comes to america and you know if it's by you know from mexico if it's roma it has subtitles and it's not enough it's not an offense against americans To read subtitles from a movie from Mexico, but forget that. And what's more, when you watch it on Netflix, you'll be able to see the subtitles. So, or whenever, when it comes on streaming. But he did this whole Latinx cast and Latinx, 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 Latinx. Well, he is doing this to address a very specific problem in his casting. He cast in the role of Maria, the lead actress. He cast, Puerto Rican girl, comes to New York. He cast Rachel Zegler. Rachel Zegler is half Colombian, is from Hackensack, New Jersey. Her mother is Colombian. Her father is of Polish origin. She is playing a Puerto Rican. That's fine with me. I didn't care. Carol Lawrence played her on Broadway. Who was a Jew. So I don't care about any of this crap. But of course, I wrote this piece six months ago saying Spielberg was going to be in real trouble when this movie came out because he was going to get canceled because uh, for 10,000 reasons, uh, one of them being that he, Tony Kushner, the screenwriter and the entire creative team behind the movie, uh, which, you know, depicts a gang war between uh, whites and Puerto Ricans in 1950s New York, the whole team, a bunch of Jews. And the dramatic effect of the first movie is you, you kind of root for the jets. You know, you shouldn't because they they stink just as badly as the sharks do. But you kind of root for the jets anyway. And so he was going to be in real trouble because it's like Jews portraying Puerto Ricans and and, and it's it, that's imba- it's bad. And what about the cat? What about the authenticity of the casting? And Rachel Zegler is an inauthentically cast person as a Puerto Rican. She is, as I say, from Hackensack, and she is half Colombian, half Polish. Guess what comes in really handy when you're in this position as Steven Spielberg and you're really worried about getting canceled? The word Latinx. It's fantastic because Rachel Zegler is Latinx, you see. She's Latinx because her mother came from Colombia. That makes her Latinx. So he is paying tribute to Latinx performers. He is paying tribute to Spanish, the, the, the spoken Spanish. The guy is a PR genius. He has decided to adopt their terminology, to adopt progressive terminology and progressive mindsets in order to stave off. And I know he read my piece in order to stave off exactly the kind of cancellation threat. That he is under with the production of this movie. And that's another reason why Latinx is use, exists. It's useful. It's useful to these people because it allows them to say, I'm doing X, Y, and Z for you because you're, you know, for, for Latinx people. Like not just for Mexican people of Mexican origin or people who come from Puerto Rico or Afro-Cubans or whatever. I'm cutting it for you. Latinx person Rachel Zegler from Hackensack, New Jersey. With that, we'll be back to you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, and I'm John Podhorz. Keep the candle burning.